1: There is an all-out war for Jeffrey Epstein's money, and there's about a half a billion dollars of it. And it's possible that he left that money to the very people who enabled and participated in his sex trafficking operation. Um, wow. That's Virginia Roberts-Dufresne, who spent three years trapped by Epstein.
2: If the money went to people that helped him get away with abusing so many girls and minors... I would be gut-wrenching sick over it. um, That would be another horrendous disjustice in the face of us victims.
1: That would be horrible. She was forced to have sex with him, his friends, his business associates. She was poor, and he and Ghislaine Maxwell lured her into his world by promising her an education.
2: You know, Jeffrey took away a very important time of my life where I should have been going to school and I could have gone to school and I could have fixed my life up. But instead he promised me, don't worry, we're gonna get you certified, you're gonna be a real masseuse, you're gonna be educated and and all this, you know, and he did that with a lot of other victims too. So that very small important time in your life where you can study it and, and become whatever you want to do was taken from us. So in my view, he and his estate owes it to us victims for stealing at least that part away from us as well. He didn't just abuse us, he didn't just scare us into being silent, he didn't just do all of that. What he stole from us was a time in our life where we were supposed to be figuring out who we are and what we were going to do with it. And that money in my my idea should be going towards the victims so they can have that opportunity to say, okay, this is what I really want to do with my life. I think it's important.
1: I'm Arielle Levy, and this is Broken, Jeffrey Epstein. I'm going to mention at the top here that we're shifting our show to an every other week schedule. This week, we're going to talk about Epstein's money. On our first episode, we spoke with Roberta Kaplan, a lawyer for one of Epstein's victims. And right after that show, she filed a lawsuit against Epstein's estate. But she told us it's not going to be easy to get that money. Two days before Epstein died, he rewrote his will to put his money in the U.S. Virgin Islands.
3: So that makes things very, very complicated for my client and the many, many other women uh, in her position. Um, the Virgin Islands is a obviously a small jurisdiction. Uh, I'm sh- quite sure they've never really handled anything like this before.
1: We wanted to understand this better, so our producer, Adam Davidson, has been calling around
4: the Virgin Islands. Just tell me what it looks like there. It probably looks different than Brooklyn.
5: Oh, well, I'm actually in Dallas right now. I uh, left for September so I can avoid the hurricanes and all the tropical storms. But normally, it's, uh, it's beautiful, it's green and lush, it's um, pretty mountainous, um, and then you have the blue, blue uh, water. It's a beautiful place to live.
1: That's Robert Eberhardt, who's a lawyer on the most populous of the 50 or so Virgin Islands, St. Thomas. And he's not just a lawyer on St. Thomas, he's one of five. There are only five lawyers on the island who specialize in wills and probate, according to the local bar association. And the people processing those probate cases?
5: Carolyn Purcell is one of them, and then Henry Carr is the other magistrate. So, you know, really and truly, those are the two different people that would be assigned the
4: case. Wait, there's only two people who handle all the probate cases?
1: Yes. Oh, and those two magistrates also handle all of the island's traffic cases, all of their small claims. They are ridiculously busy. Eberhardt always tells clients, don't go through the Virgin Island courts for wills and probate. It takes forever.
5: I have one case where my client is an heir to an estate that's not particularly complicated. And it's been going on for, I think, eight years now. And it's uh, just just now they're getting to the stage where they're going to have a final adjudication.
4: Wow. So eight or nine years, and it could be many years more before yes. any money is actually distributed. Yes. And and that's yeah. a not a especially complicated case. So
5: how does... Not, not compared to Jeffrey Epstein's case.
1: The U.S. Virgin Islands are a territory of the U.S. sort of like a state with its own legislature and local courts. Although, Robert says, it's also a lot like a small town. There are 100,000 people in all of the islands, around half of them on St. Thomas. And he's pretty sure he knows nearly all of the lawyers there, which wouldn't be hard. There are fewer than 300. Eberhard says the culture of law is pretty laid back. People on island, as he calls it, often avoid the courts when someone dies.
5: You'll have a case where the grandparents and then the parents passed away and the grandchildren have been living on the property for, you know, 30 years and they haven't gotten around to probating it yet. Wow. And so then you have a incredibly complicated Are you situation.
4: So th- it might be multiple <laughs> generations and then some, like, second cousins yeah. start saying, wait, no, I own this land. No, no I own this land. And... Yeah. And they have to go back, like, multiple generations to figure out, wow, because nobody wants to bother, even with a regular case.
5: Right. Yeah. And that that happens quite frequently.
1: But that makes things that do get to court even more complicated. By the time something is before a magistrate, it might involve a complex stew of family history with decades-old, poorly-remembered verbal agreements. Eberhard says it's hard to imagine the Epstein case coming into this system. It would be a huge and complex case in New York, a city filled with thousands of lawyers used to billion-dollar disputes. Throwing a half-billion-dollar mess of complex finances and hundreds of competing interests into a system that can barely handle a simple will is unimaginable. Eberhard isn't even sure where all the incoming lawyers would stay.
5: There's not a lot of hotel rooms right now because of the hurricanes of 2017. Like, the Ritz still isn't open again, you know. Uh, The Marriott's partially open.
1: There are also some basic fairness questions. Jeffrey Epstein was deeply embedded in the business and power structures of the U.S. Virgin Islands.
5: Everybody knew about Epstein. He's pretty notorious. Like, I never saw him around, and I was surprised at how many businesses he was involved in. So for instance, his office manager of one of his businesses was um, uh, Cecile de Young, who was the wife of the former governor, two governors ago, John de Young.
1: So the guy owns two islands. He owns several big businesses on the big island. He's employed a lot of the most powerful people on all these islands. Obviously, he knows when he makes a will, putting all his money in the Virgin Islands, he's going to make it almost impossible for his victims ever to get at that money.
5: Uh, I mean, it's going to go on forever. Uh, I could see it being a 20-year probate matter, considering the complexities.
1: So some people think that a special master will be appointed, which could make the whole thing go more quickly. But Eberhardt, after he reconsidered it, thought 20 years was not even the right estimate. I think that could
5: be an optimistic number.
1: Epstein placed his money in a trust, which means we don't know who he named as his heirs. But over the past few years, he's given money to the people who most helped him in his sexual crimes. And he was obsessed with keeping money away from his victims. So it seems reasonable to think that his trust will reward co-conspirators and encourage them to keep silent. And a well-written trust could provide them money right away, long before the will and probate are finalized. So the longer the case drags out, the better it is for Epstein's side and the worse it is for the victims. But there is another possibility, a much quicker solution.
6: I would argue the government would be entitled to every dime.
1: That's Paul Pelletier. He was a federal prosecutor in Miami for decades, and he spent a lot of his time taking money away from criminals. He eventually became head of fraud for the Department of Justice, and he's also our legal analyst. He says there's a way for Epstein's victims to avoid the Virgin Islands, avoid the whole process of wills and probate. If Epstein got his money illegally, then it might not be technically his money. It might be the U.S. government's money. So then his will is irrelevant. The money isn't his. In the United
6: States, tainted money is any money
1: that is the proceeds of a crime. So
6: if you have a fraud case and you steal money from people, any money that you steal from people is tainted money. From the government's perspective, the statute of limitations never applies to tainted money once the government has obtained a judgment against that money.
1: If Epstein got his money as part of a crime... And the key here is a crime that was prosecuted successfully by the government. His money can be seized, even if that crime occurred decades ago. Paul has dealt with this before. He went after a drug trafficker named Julio Cesar Nasser David, who was one of the heads of the Colombian North Coast cartel.
6: As a prosecutor, I went after drug money. Well, so the money that I seized in 1996, which was deposited in 1978 as drug proceeds, had grown exponentially because it was invested in in you know equity accounts. I got every dime of it. Um, I, I was able to seize every dime of it because it was originally tainted money.
1: This wasn't some small time operation. Paul and his team were able to recover 200 million bucks. The case even made it into the Guinness Book of World Records.
6: Because it was the largest drug cash seizure
1: ever at the time. Let's say you steal a million bucks and invest it in a legitimate business, and then that business grows and is worth hundreds of millions. The government can still seize all that money because it has all become tainted by that original crime. The trick, though, is that original crime has to have been prosecuted successfully. Since everything in this Epstein story is so nuts, this is nuts, too. It looks quite likely that his wealth originally came precisely that way. He got it as part of a major crime that was, at the time, prosecuted, and the money was identified as tainted. He got away while other people went to jail. But his money can't shake the taint of that illegality. So that means that with a bit of work, the government might be able to seize his wealth quickly and distribute it as they see fit.
6: They have a a lot of leeway. It goes into an asset forfeiture fund. And there are rules about that asset forfeiture fund. But typically, restitution to victims is the primary objective of that fund.
4: and avoid the whole Virgin Islands mess. Well, that would work
1: out well, Adam. That's our producer, Adam Davidson, who's back with us. And he's going to tell the story of how Epstein first got rich.
4: Thanks, Ari. The story starts in 1987 with a guy named Steven Hoffenberg. He's in a ton of trouble. He was this wildly rich man. He had jets and limos. He was pretty soon going to start plans to buy the New York Post. But he had this problem, which turned out to be a big problem. He was committing crimes. Though, Hoffenberg prefers to use a different term.
7: We were stuck in this accounting estimation problem, what they call
4: illegality. The accounting estimation problem, as he calls it, that thing the rest of us call illegality, (laughs) was that he was lying. He was lying about how much money his company was going to bring in. He was doing that so that he could convince investors to give him more money than he would have if he told the truth. But Hoffenberg was beginning to realize that his lies would catch up with him. So, he says, he called a friend of his, an arms dealer. And that friend told him to meet a young man named Jeffrey Epstein. Did
1: you just say an arms dealer, Adam?
4: Oh, this story is so rich. He met the arms dealer, he told me, because they somehow both had a connection with recently deposed dictator of the Philippines, Ferdinand Marcos.
1: You're making this up.
4: No, it's all true. The story is crazy. So, Hoffenberg, as quickly as he can, meets this young man, this young Jeffrey Epstein.
7: Extraordinary, magnificent personality. Epstein got under your skin. He figured you out right away... And he was able to embellish and say to you what you wanted to hear.
4: What Hoffenberg wanted to hear, and what he says Epstein told him, was that he didn't have to tell the truth. He didn't have to shut down his company, come clean, maybe face a brief jail sentence. Rather, Epstein told him he could make the scam even bigger. He could make a lot more money. So they doubled down. They doubled down. I was
7: shocked and his way of thinking in the criminal mindset. Jeffrey Epstein came in and took over as the expert mastermind of this part of Towers Financial.
4: Keep in mind, Ari, at this point in 1987, when Epstein enters this fraud, he's a nobody. He's lost. And I think a lot of our listeners know the rough outline of Epstein's biography, Born in Brooklyn to a lower middle class family, dropped out of college, then taught math at Dalton, this elite private high school in Manhattan. Then he got a job at Bear Stearns, the Wall Street Investment Bank. Then in 1981, he gets fired for reasons that are still not really known. And then he goes into this weird place from 1981 to 1987. Epstein is literally wandering the world, hustling for money. Wow. He somehow gets involved. Do you remember Adnan Khashoggi, the international arms dealer who was central to the Iran-Contra scandal? Khashoggi was a client of his. Jesus. Yeah, we don't know a lot about exactly what Epstein was doing, but he reportedly told friends that he was helping very rich people find money that others had taken from them, and according to some people, he was also hiding their money from authorities.
1: (laughs) So like a financial bounty hunter.
4: A financial bounty hunter. Exactly. And somehow, doing all that work, he emerges completely broke. He made a lot of money, but...
7: He was always living above his means, and he was always spending more money than he earned. In the job he had he was paid well and he drew expenses the money was spent on his high lifestyle his fast lane living Jeffrey Epstein loved the fast lane
4: lifestyle Epstein is so desperate at this time when he meets Hoffenberg that he's sleeping on his lawyer's couch, according to many people who knew Epstein at the time. Now, Hoffenberg is also desperate. So together, along with a few other co-conspirators, Hoffenberg says that Epstein helped them cook up a much grander scheme. So let me paint the picture as best I can with help from Terrence Corrigan, who was a lawyer assigned to oversee Towers Financial. That's Hoffenberg's company when, spoiler alert, the whole scam blew up and the company went into bankruptcy.
0: In the course of our investigation, uh, we did discover what the, the SEC later called the largest Ponzi scheme in history to that time.
4: So let me explain how it worked. Towers Financial, Hoffenberg's company, was a debt collection agency. When some company was owed money that it couldn't collect, Towers would pay that company a pittance, pennies on the dollar, to take over that debt. You've probably gotten these calls from some weird company saying, you owe so much money to Visa. or Not me, Adam. Ari, be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so whatever Towers could collect, they could keep. And that part is legal sometimes maddening and frustrating and but it's legal. But the scam part is that towers would go out to investors, to pension funds, to also just regular investors and sell them bonds. Bonds are like a formal IOU that a company or government might issue. So someone at Towers Financial, often Epstein himself, according to Hoffenberg, would tell these investors that the bonds are really safe because they are backed by all this debt, all this money that Towers is owed by all these people out there, unpaid medical bills or whatever. They could even show those investors piles of bills with names and addresses and dollars amount owed. So Ari Levy owes $500,000. We're going to collect at least $300,000. We feel confident. Although it turns out those invoices... Many of them were simply generated out of
0: the New York City phone book. That is, people would paste through the phone book, pick names, pick addresses, and create false invoices that were made part of the package.
4: That's right. The folks at Towers would write down random names from the phone book. You remember phone books. <laughs> <laughs> and random medical procedures to create fake debt so they can then go to real people, real investors, and ask them to hand over their real money... Because they're saying, hey, we're going to get all this debt back in the future.
1: And all they had to back that up was just a bunch
4: of names out of the phone book, literally. Literally. Now, sometimes they'd invite those investors to Towers headquarters in Manhattan to see how good they were at collecting bills.
0: They had three floors on Fifth Avenue and the top floor was the executive office. And that was all wood paneling and leather furniture and very nice and sophisticated and expensive looking and then they had a couple of floors of cubicles, and the cubicles were filled with people who spent most of the day doing a crossword puzzle or playing gin with each other or running errands or doing whatever people do when they're not working. And then investors would be invited in to see the operation, and they would spend some time with Hoffenberg on the executive floor. And then they would be invited to tour the, the back office, as it were, the, you know, the guts of the operation. The phone call would be downstairs. Everybody sprang into action, got on the phone, You know, they looked like they were busy collecting receivables and doing what they were supposed to do to make sure that this was a viable business.
4: So it's like a movie set. It's a performance.
0: Very much. Very much So
4: So this is a classic form of what is called the big con. It's essentially identical to the scam at the center of the awesome movie, The Sting. The scammers create a theatrical experience. There's a bunch of actors, essentially, who convince a mark that there's a ton of money about to be made if they just get in on it now. Now, the idea that Jeffrey Epstein, who we know was working in that office, wouldn't know a scam was going on is very hard to imagine. And in fact, with the Towers fraud, there's an added level of difficulty because they also had to do all the formal work of issuing bonds which is really hard when you actually have real collateral to back up a bond, but it's even more difficult when you have to make it all up. They had to create these long legal documents that would be reviewed by securities lawyers, government regulators. Now, Hoffenberg says he didn't know how to do any of that. Epstein and this other guy, Mitchell Brader, the vice chairman of the company, they knew how to dress up these lies into the formal language of bonds.
7: Brader and Jeffrey Epstein were amazingly astute in how to rip off the public in selling the securities. They were brilliant. Totally brilliant.
4: So, um, now the reason this is a Ponzi scheme, as I understand it, is because you would take the proceeds from subsequent bond issues to pay the investors for the previous ones, which is the definition of a Ponzi scheme, right? That is correct. Once you
7: use... New money to pay old money, that's classified as a Ponzi
4: scheme. Again, at the time, the biggest Ponzi scheme in history. Money is coming in like crazy. Hundreds of millions of dollars. In fact, Hoffenberg says Epstein becomes obsessed with using that money to really make a big mark. He decides he's going to buy Pan Am which at the time was probably the most prestigious historic airline in the world and the bond scheme wasn't enough for this team so towers adds to this ongoing ponzi scheme massive insurance fraud They buy two insurance companies in Illinois, Associated Life Insurance and United Fire Insurance. And like any insurance company, though, they have lots of money in the bank because they took in premiums from people and are holding on to the money so they can pay it out when someone's house burns down or someone with a life insurance policy dies. Now... Regulators always keep a close eye on insurance companies because it would obviously be very bad if they don't have money left when the customers need it and can't rebuild their house or get on with their life after a loved one dies. So in a routine audit, the state of Illinois notices that there are weird things happening at these two companies. They then asked a lawyer, Barry Gross, to take over the companies, to dissolve them and have the state take responsibility for any claims. As Gross does his job, he quickly discovers this isn't just a poorly run set of companies. This is a major fraud.
8: In this case, they were fraudulently transferring money. For example, the money that was transferred to Epstein was characterized as consulting services. You know, no one could demonstrate what consulting services he ever provided. Epstein was someone who no one in the insurance company Industry recognizes someone who had expertise, you know, where you would go to for consulting services, and that type of an expense is just totally uncommon. It, it, so we were concerned about that being money just uh, fraudulently transferred from the
4: company. Now, Gross, mind you, is not a cop; he's not a criminal prosecutor. He's a lawyer and a CPA who has uncovered what looks like blatant crime. So he calls the people who prosecute crime.
8: You know, we did contact the, the Chicago U.S. Attorney's Office, U.S. Attorney's Office for the Northern District of Illinois, and let them know of our concerns. They started the investigation here, but it clearly the, the companies were being managed out of New York, and so they ultimately transferred it to uh, the New York office of the, District Attorney, uh, of the U.S. Attorney's Office.
4: Now, in Chicago, Epstein's name kept coming up. It came up in Barry Gross's investigation. And then, according to some great reporting in The Washington Post, Epstein's name also came up in grand jury testimony in Chicago in 1993, which identified him as the mastermind of the whole scheme.
1: So he's like a zealot of crime. If there's a crime, he's there.
4: It is incredible to... You couldn't make up this character. He was involved in some of the shadiest aspects of our financial system. The wild days of Wall Street in the early 80s, when deregulation is creating just this free-for-all. The shady world of arms dealers and money laundering in the mid-80s. This massive Ponzi scheme, even later, we'll get to this in a later episode, becomes the head of a major subprime lending operation that was part of the toxic assets that brought down the global economy.
1: He's like a villain in eight different movies.
4: If you made up this character...
1: You'd have to tone it down.
4: You'd have to tone it down, exactly. But in this case, Epstein slips away. He kind of disappears from the whole Towers operation before things start getting really bad. And then... There's this early investigation in Chicago. They transfer the whole investigation to New York, to the Southern District of New York, because Towers is based here. And somehow in that process, Epstein's name disappears. Prosecutors here don't bring him up ever again. What happens to Hoffenberg? Hoffenberg is sentenced to 20 years in prison. He (laughs) serves most of it. Mitch Brader and another Confederate are also convicted. But Epstein isn't, as far as we can tell, even looked at. And... I should say, we're still looking into this, we're still reporting, but as far as we can tell right now, this was not a case of Epstein being protected by powerful figures or treated in a special way like he would be years later with his case in Florida. He just gets lucky. He was lucky and maybe a little savvy. He was never on the payroll of Towers. He was a consultant, and all the co-conspirators who were actually on the payroll were loud and easy targets. So prosecutors focused on them. But even though Epstein was never convicted of this crime, if you remember what Paul Pelletier told us, that doesn't matter because the money he got from the scam, and we know for sure he got money, was tainted by the crime. All of that money was identified as tainted money forever. And if that money was used to fund his future businesses, then that money is tainted too. Now, that would even be true... If Epstein wasn't a participant in the fraud, if he was an innocent dupe who just somehow got paid by this Ponzi scheme... Probably the best
6: example that we have of that is in the Madoff-Ponzi scheme.
4: So that's Paul Pelletier again, that former prosecutor. And the Bernie Madoff example is very telling. As with any Ponzi scheme, Madoff was using future investments to pay off earlier investors. And one of those lucky investors was a hedge fund manager named Stanley Chase, who got around $1 billion from Madoff. He died and left his money to his widow.
6: The government was pursuing those funds, even though the wife had nothing to do with the crime, was in sole possession of the money. Um, but the money was directly linked to Madoff's Ponzi scheme.
4: So, even if he was innocent, if authorities can show that some significant portion of his wealth originated in the tower's fraud, the government can seize it. But we obviously don't think that he was innocent of wrongdoing. And remember, when Jeffrey Epstein met Stephen Hoffenberg in 1987, he was broke. When he stops working with him around 1991, Epstein is wildly rich. He was becoming the man who had so much money, he was able to live this life of complete disregard for the law. Now, The other thing that happened that's important in that same time period is he also met Les Wexner, the owner of Victoria's Secret. And probably as listeners to this show know, everybody's trying to figure out what his relationship with Wexner was and how much money he got out of that relationship. So right now, we don't know how much of Epstein's money came from the Tower scam and how much came from other sources. Now, Hoffenberg told me Epstein made hundreds of millions of dollars from towers, but it's hard to take Hoffenberg at his word. I mean, he is a convicted fraudster who is seeking to rebuild his reputation, and it must be a great temptation to say, hey, everyone, you know the most hated man in the world? He actually did all the crimes that I pled guilty to. But we do have clear documentary evidence that Epstein received hundreds of thousands of dollars from the scam, written out to his name in records. And obviously, when you're running a massive multi-million-dollar scam, you don't normally write checks to yourself in your name. So we can assume that he made many millions of dollars from the scam. But to this day, we don't know how much. Now, the reason it's important to know how much is because for prosecutors to seize all of his wealth, to avoid the Virgin Islands mess— They need to show sort of a chain of custody. They need to show that the money he has today, the money he left in his trust, originated in this crime. Now, there's another avenue also, which is to show that the subsequent money was also part of crimes. Because in theory, it's possible that the second he left Towers, he never again did anything illicit. I called Diana Enriquez, she's a legendary financial reporter. She was at the New York Times for a long, long time. And she actually covered the Towers' financial fraud and later became one of the only reporters who Bernie Madoff would talk to when he was in jail. There's this great HBO film starring Robert De Niro about their relationship. She has known a ton of conmen and Ponzi schemers, and she's made it a big project to understand how they think. And I asked her how likely it is that Epstein's wealth, after the Towers fraud, after all the other things he had done, came from legitimate sources.
3: Well, you know, con men are going to con. That's um, part of the allure. I mean, one of the most confounding things about writing about con artists uh, is that in almost every single case, these are people who could have been enormously successful as honest people. They're so smart, so attractive, educated, uh, creative, inventive, all of those things, that if those had, traits had been applied honestly, they almost certainly would have been successful. And there's some very interesting sociological research uh, that suggests that it is the thrill of putting something over on people that makes the crooked life more attractive to men than the straight life, in which they likely could have been just as successful. So tell me how addicted Jeffrey Epstein was to that elixir of getting away with it, and I'll tell you how likely it was that he went straight after his dealings with Steve Hoffenberg. I think the evidence is overwhelming, at least in terms of his personal morality and personal life, that um, the thrill of getting away with it was overwhelming. So I find it very hard to believe that if you look at his financial behavior, that it would have followed any different arc. I think the thrill of getting away with it was part and parcel not only of his sexual life, but his business and financial and professional life.
4: And... Part of the lesson he may have learned from Towers Financial is you can get away with it.
3: You do get away with it. You do get away with it. That was, I mean, he skated past that scandal successfully.
1: Wow. Adam, you've just blown my mind. So so, so now what happens?
4: Well... I think what the victims want to happen, what I think would probably be a great thing to happen, is for federal prosecutors to go through the records of Towers Financial. As far as we know, and this shocked me, it's very likely that nobody ever went through all the records of Towers Financial to figure out exactly what Epstein's role was and exactly how that money was distributed.
1: So even though they've gone through it enough to to get— Hoffenberg in jail. It doesn't mean the government has already gone through all the documents and figured out exactly where every dollar went.
4: Yeah, I talked to Paul Pelletier about that, and he says it's very likely nobody has looked at these documents since 1993.
6: The DOJ and the FBI are notoriously bad at looking hard for assets after the conviction and the judgment. So that doesn't surprise me.
4: It wouldn't surprise you if nobody's looked at it.
6: That's correct. All right.
4: Do you think we could find it?
6: It takes work, man. You're not going to get any uh, newspaper headlines for that kind of work. You will now. Well, maybe.
4: (laughs) So can we look through those files? So that is what I'm trying to do right now. I've become obsessed with wanting to look through those files. And the answer I've gotten so far is maybe. After a giant criminal case and a giant bankruptcy, Normally, all of those files would be put in boxes and stored somewhere. I asked Terrence Corrigan. He was the man who handled the bankruptcy. Where are they?
0: Uh, They're probably at a warehouse in Brooklyn. Um, I'm I'm trying to recall. What what happens at the end of a Chapter 11 case is there's a a motion to close the case. and One of of the things that you do in a motion to close the case— is have the court authorize and direct you to store whatever records have to be stored. We would
4: have—and I, I don't know why I remember Brooklyn, but I do. Hey, we're in Brooklyn. Yeah. Let's look around. Let's go to warehouses. Um, we are trying to figure out where they could be. It's weirdly hard to find. And someone else told me, no, no, they're not in Brooklyn. They're actually in a warehouse in St. Louis. So hopefully on a future episode, we will say, here are the records. We live can from now, St. Louis. Live from St. Louis. Or maybe or in our own Gowanus. basement. Yeah. yeah.
1: All right, so to sum it all up, if someone can show that Epstein's wealth was based on this fraud, the government can seize his money and give it to the victims. What happens if they can't show that?
4: If they can't show that, then the victims are stuck with the Virgin Islands and what sounds like an already overwhelmed court system. As I mentioned, there is talk in the Virgin Islands that they might appoint a special master. They might try and consolidate all the claims to make things go quickly. It's still going to be a very, very long, very slow process.
1: All right. Well, more when you have more.
4: Yeah. I hope to come back soon.
1: Broken, Jeffrey Epstein, is produced by 3 Uncanny 4 Productions. Our senior producers are TJ Raphael and Krista Ripple. Dan Bobkoff is our showrunner. Our research team is Jack Panyard, Jennifer Siegel, and Oliver Lazarus. Daniel DeZula is our engineer, and Casey Holford composed the theme. Our special correspondent and executive producer is Julie K. Brown. Our other executive producers are Adam Davidson, Laura Mayer, Adam McKay, and Kevin Messick. For questions or comments about our show, email broken at 3uncanny4.com. You can share your thoughts with us on Twitter with the hashtag Broken, Jeffrey Epstein. And you can follow me, Avlskis—that's A that's A-V-L-S-K-I-E-S, or Adam Davidson, at Adam Davidson. Rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. It helps other listeners like you find us. For Broken, I'm Arielle Levy. We'll be back in two weeks.